listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. I've really just enjoyed preaching through the sermon. I've spent a lot of time in recent years studying the Sermon on the Mount, reading various books and commentaries, but there's something about preaching the Sermon on the Mount that has really opened up new insights for me that I've tried my best to give you, and it's been just such a rich sermon to glean from and to examine together as a church. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Uh, This sermon is going to be kind of a hybrid sermon. A good portion of it is going to be preaching, but another portion of it is going to be me just sharing some of my story. So it's going to be a little bit different uh, tonight, but I think think it'll be meaningful, and I, I really trust that the Holy Spirit is going to do a work in our hearts. Let's look at our passage, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Jesus says, ask, and it will be given you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Oftentimes, the impetus that creates a desire in our heart to seek God it begins in some kind of personal crisis. As someone who's been a pastor for a few years, it's been my observation that a lot of times when people walk into a church for the first time, maybe they don't even know anyone, oftentimes what's generated a desire to come to this church is they're on a search because they sense something's missing. And, and oftentimes the revelation that something's missing has been born out of a crisis in their lives. Maybe their marriage is on the rocks. Maybe they just received a devastating medical diagnosis. They're in the midst of an addiction that's extremely painful, maybe on the verge of bankruptcy. Something has happened that has triggered a realization that I am empty, I am void on the inside, and everything I've been doing has not been satisfying. And, and they, they're, they're now in a place where they're humble enough to ask, to seek, to knock. And so they come to a church. And pastors understand this. It's oftentimes the first place, the first time we encounter someone, they're in this kind of place. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I would guess that many of you here tonight, that's been your story. Your, your whole journey with Jesus, perhaps, started with a crisis. Or maybe along your journey with Jesus, it's been different crises that you've experienced that have propelled you forward in your journey with Jesus. I know that's been the case for me. And God is so awesome and so gracious that he receives us as we are and he works with what we give him. 
And if we're motivated to come to God out of a personal crisis that we need fixed, God will accept us on those terms. And yet, God's desire is that this will only be an entry point into a deeper, richer, ever-increasing understanding and experience of who God is, where we discover that, just like the prodigal son, and Crystal read that passage very appropriately for this sermon, just like the prodigal son, I don't have to make a deal with God and bargain with God and say, God, if you'll do this, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna and we make some outlandish promise, but we actually more and more, we discover God as a kind, generous, loving father. And it's with that spirit that Jesus says, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And then at the end of the passage, he says, because God loves to give good things to those who ask him. Now, I got to get one thing out of the way right off the bat. Commonly, when people read this verse, the Father loves to give good things to those who ask. We assume material possessions is what Jesus has in mind, and it's not. We just dealt with this two passages ago. Remember the whole back half of chapter 6? Jesus is talking about the anxiety that comes from an unbalanced, inordinate preoccupation with material riches. And unfortunately, in our consumer-oriented society, when we read a verse like this, the Father wants to give us good things, we think, oh, that sounds great because I, I really want a new Mustang. What, is, what, is, what does Jesus have in mind? Well, I think we get a clear answer when we look at the parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke. Luke gives us a parallel account of this same teaching, and Luke actually follows it pretty much word for word. Ask and you'll receive, search and you'll find, knock and the door will be open, he's a good father, etc., etc. Except when you get to the very end, there's a, there's a difference, there's a slight difference. And I want you to see what Luke says. Luke chapter 11, verse 13, he says, So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So what in Matthew was... The Father gives good things. In Luke, it's he gives the Holy Spirit. So now it becomes clear the good things that Jesus has in mind. He's talking about deep, rich encounters with God. A deeper immersion into who God is. An experience of God. He's, he's inviting us into that. So if we read this verse or this passage and we go home saying, God, I really want you to give me that new Mercedes Benz, I think perhaps we're missing it. God cannot be utilized as a means to satisfy personal lusts. God will not be a facilitator of greed. Put it like that. Now let's look at the verse right before this one. Some of you that were here last weekend, you'll remember we covered this in part of that judge not message. But I want to grab this one because I want to show you how it connects with this passage. So at the very end, as Jesus is talking about judge not, lest ye be judged, the measure you give is going to be the measure you get. You remember he says, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. 
So Jesus is talking about holy things. He's talking about pearls. Now, did Jesus ever talk about pearls anywhere else? Well, you remember there's one point where Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And he, he ends up finding this pearl of great price, this extremely valuable pearl, and he's willing to sell everything he has to obtain that pearl. And Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's what the kingdom of God is like. So the pearl, the holy thing that Jesus is talking about, is this whole kingdom of God thing, this reality of, of encountering God in our lives in a deeper and richer way, where evermore we're gaining new insight, new revelation, and new experience, new depths in our encounters with, with him. But go back to Matthew 7, verse 6. But look at what he says when he's talking about not judging. He's saying, don't give what is holy to dogs, and don't throw your pearls before swine. In other words, if you take what you have, this insight, this revelation, these experiences, the, this incredible stuff that you've gained from the Lord, these good things that you've obtained from God, and you give it to people who aren't interested and they don't appreciate the value of what you're giving them, Jesus says it's a waste of time. Don't bother doing that. Don't cast your pearls before swine. They're going to trample on them and attack you. So if they're not interested in your pearls, if they're not hungry for God, then, then, then don't bother because they're just going to attack you and you're actually going to be doing more harm than good. But then you see how that connects with this passage. He says to us now, you do want those pearls. You are hungry. So ask and you're going to receive. Seek and you're going to find. Knock and the door is going to be open to you. God's not going to force it upon you. He's not going to coerce you into this. But he wants to give it to you, but he still needs you to ask and seek. You know, Jesus gave us a couple parables that show us the necessity of being persistent in prayer. He says, imagine, for example, he says, imagine that you have a friend who's traveled a long way. They're on a long journey, and they're going to come lodge with you one night. But they arrive really late, like past midnight, and they're extremely tired, but they're also quite hungry. They're famished. And unfortunately, you don't have any bread in your pantry, and all the bakeries are closed. It's past midnight. So you walk out of your house, and you go to your next-door neighbor's house, and you knock on their gate, and you wake up your next-door neighbor, and your neighbor looks out of their window. They're on the upper floor of the house. That's where they always lived and stayed. And the neighbor looks down at you and says, what do you want? And you say, well, I've got a friend that's just arrived after a long journey. And my friend's extremely hungry, but I've run out of bread. Can you, can you please loan me three loaves of bread? And your neighbor says, I'm already in bed. My kids are in bed. The gate's locked. Go away. And you say, no, I've got to have those loaves of bread, please. I need these loaves of bread. Jesus says, even if your neighbor won't loan you the loaves of bread on the basis of friendship, just because you keep asking and you, you're still persistent and you won't stop bothering them, eventually they're going to say, I'm not going to get any sleep until I give this person what they want. And Jesus says, I want you to be like that with God. And then he says, 
Imagine there's an unjust judge who has no respect for God and no respect for human beings. But there's a widow woman who keeps coming to the judge saying, I've got a dispute with my adversary. I need you to give me justice. And she keeps bothering him. She keeps pestering him. Every corner he walks around, she's right there. Day and night, she just, she's persistent. And eventually that unjust judge says, you know what, even though I don't fear God and I don't respect human beings, because this woman won't leave me alone, I'm gonna give her what she wants. Jesus says, ask, you're gonna receive. Seek, you're gonna find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Be persistent. Now, it's a paradox because Jesus is also very quick to tell us God is not like the unwilling friend. God is not like an unjust judge. Quite the opposite. God can't wait to give you these good things, these deeper, richer encounters with him, this deeper insight in the kingdom. God so wants to give it to you. Jesus says, Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And yet in the same breath, he says, seek it earnestly. Now, how in the world does this work? If, if God is so motivated to give us the good things of the kingdom, and yet we still need to seek it, then why is that the case? I think it works like this. God created every one of us as authentic beings. Because God, what God wants more than anything is to be in a loving relationship with us. But in order for love to exist, there's got to be freedom. You have to have a choice to love or a choice not to love. Love demands freedom. It's why you can't be in a loving relationship with a robot. You know, I suppose you can create a robot and program that robot to do everything you ask and to be obedient, but you can't be in a loving relationship with a robot because the robot's got no choice. And that's, for God to create us as robots would be totally undermining the whole plan, the whole purpose, which is a loving relationship. And so God so wants to draw us into that, but he, it would be so easy for, for him to overwhelm us which would eradicate our authenticity. And so he gives us freedom and his desire is that as authentic beings, out of our own will, out of our own volition, out of our own hunger and desire, that we would seek him constantly and that we would over time come to know him more and more and come to love him. He wants to draw us into that experience but there's a search that needs to happen. And I want to tell you folks, it's not something that you do one time in your life. Well, Ryan, I remember December 18th, 1983, I sought God and I found Jesus. And so I've got, I've got everything I need. Now my job is just not to lose him. I'm telling you, there's so much more. There's more, there are more, more pearls to be found. There's more insight. There's more revelation. There are deeper, richer encounters with God that, that is right in front of you. And if you knew what you were missing, you wouldn't stop seeking. You wouldn't be complacent with where you are. You would continue to push. God, I want more of you. Let me give you the story that I want to share with you tonight out of my own life. 2015, I was a 34-year-old pastor 
I've been pastoring for two years in Louisiana. We had a fairly sizable church. We had a K-12 school on our campus as well that I oversaw. So I had, a, as a young pastor, a lot of responsibility. And that year, 2015, it seemed like there was so much momentum in our church on all kinds of fronts. Attendance was booming. I was going to church growth conferences and learning attractional techniques and things you can do to, to attract people and keep them there. And, and it was working, quote unquote. Attendance was booming. Uh, the finances of the church were better than they had ever been as far as I could go back and measure. I, it, it was probably the best year our church had ever had in, in its 60 plus year existence. And I was 34 and I was mesmerized by the visible, what seemed to be visible fruit and momentum of the church. And I was excited and things were going great. Morale was super high. And then 2016 hit and our local economy took a nosedive. In South Central Louisiana, the main driver of our economy is offshore oil drilling. And for a variety of reasons, the offshore oil drilling industry took a nosedive 2016, and with it, our entire local economy and, and our church suffered tremendously. After having the best year I think we had ever had, 2016, from one year to the next, we lost over $100,000 in tithes and offerings, not counting any missions giving. So financially, we were now in a, in a really tough spot. Our budget now just went out the, out the window. You can't budget when you have that kind of loss. And then our school lost about 15% of its enrollment because families were not able to send their kids to our school. They couldn't afford it. And all of a sudden, I felt a weight and I felt some pressure internally, externally that I had never been through in my life at that point. And, and whereas one year earlier, I was on top of this mountain, it was wonderful and there was all this momentum and I felt like I was really doing something for the kingdom. The very next year, I realized that just as a human being, I did not have the interior resources to navigate the storm. That in other words, my spiritual health was way overrated. And I rel realized I, I am very spiritually unhealthy as a man, as a pastor. And this crisis exposed that in me. And I realized I gotta do something different. If this church is growing and things are going well, but my spiritual health is languishing, maybe I've confused the whole mission altogether because I don't feel like I'm becoming more like Jesus and it's showing. And so I did something I had never done up until that point. I went on a little spiritual retreat, just myself, 20 miles north of our church, there's a campground, a Baptist campground that allows pastors to stay in their cabins for free. And I went and got me a cabin, and I stayed for uh, about 24 hours. I left my phone, I left my electronics, I just brought, it was just me, myself, and my Bible. And I went to that cabin, and my goal, my agenda was to do nothing but just meet with God. I set an appointment with God. I said, God, I need, I need something different. I, I, I gotta do something, I gotta change something. 
And so I spent that day in prayer, and um, probably the longest I had ever prayed <laughs> that whole day. And I remember this distinct moment. I was sitting on the porch of this cabin. There's a little porch swing, and I'm sitting there watching the pond in front of me. And in, my, in one hand, I had my Bible. In my other hand, I had a bag of Doritos. And when I say a bag of Doritos, it wasn't fun size. It was, one of the, like, it was like a family size bag of Doritos. And I'm just chomping, like, with, like, like, like I hadn't eaten in a week. I'm just eating those Doritos. It was about 2.30 in the afternoon. And I had the most natural thought in the world. I just thought to myself, man, if I keep eating these Doritos, I'm not going to have an appetite for dinner, for actually real nutritious food. So I got to put this away. And in that moment, just out of that natural thought, I felt like God began to speak to me. I, I was starting to finally get something. I was starting to get what I had come for. And it was just God using my thoughts. It was, I would say it like this. I started receiving just spirit-inspired thoughts. Nothing mystical or weird. Just felt like God's hand was on my thinking. Does that make sense? And I started thinking, here I am, I'm eating these Doritos, realizing if I keep eating these Doritos, I'm not going to have an appetite for dinner. And I said, that's a picture of my spiritual life right now. And as I kept thinking, I realized that just like I have a physical appetite that is finite, I also have a spiritual appetite that is finite. And I can only fill my soul with so much stuff and it gets full. And if all I do is just consume junk food in my soul, the junk food of culture, entertainment, the junk food of just pop theology that you can find on every shelf of Christian bookstores, if all, if all I do is fill my soul with that, then I'm not going to have an appetite for the deeper riches of God's presence and God's spirit and the revelation he actually wants to pour into my soul. And so I'm going to have to change my diet because we tend to crave what we consume and we consume what we crave. What I mean is if you go to some other part of the world, let's say you go to some third world country somewhere and maybe you're spending time with a culture in the world that eats a completely different cuisine. Maybe you're with a tribe somewhere in South America or Africa or in Asia somewhere and you're, you're starting to eat a meal, share a meal with them. You know, they're used to eating things that you probably aren't used to eating. I've been in that position where I'm eating stuff I've never dreamed of eating in my life. And I can tell you that uh, it's disgusting in general, you know? I mean, I don't have any kind of palate for this stuff. And I'm thinking, man, is there, a, is there a McDonald's out here, you know? And generally there's not. But, but the folks who, who are native to that land and that culture, if this is what they've been eating their entire lives, this is what they crave. This is, their, this is what their palate is formed in because they've been eating it, they've been consuming it. In the same way that when they come to, when I have friends, for example, from India who visit the United States, they have no appetite for the things you and I eat. And we gotta get very creative sometimes with what we feed them. 
because we tend to crave what we consume. And we also tend to consume what we crave. It's, it's this cycle. And I realize I got to break the cycle I'm in. I'm spiritually un unhealthy, and I got to change my spiritual diet. And I got to reorder my priorities as a human being, as a man, as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor. And I made some decisions that weekend. I just, I just said, God, I believe there's more. I, I know there's got to be a better way to be a human being than the way I'm being a human being. I got to do something different. And Lord, I need you to show me what it is. And I said, God, out of all of the things that I do as a pastor, preparing sermons, preaching, leading meetings, overseeing different things, whatever, the one thing I want to learn how to do really well right now is I want to learn how to pray. And I said that as a young man who had been praying my entire life, but I knew there's got to be a better way to do it. Lord, teach me to pray. I want to learn how to encounter you in the right way, because I think there's a wrong way to seek that, because I had already experienced that. Lord, show me how to pray. And that, just to make a long story short, that launched me on a journey for the next two or three years. And, and in some ways, I'm still on that journey. I don't think I'll ever stop. But I started tapping into things about prayer. I started reading books and listening to sermons and, and just gleaning from people who I had realized they figured something out about this. People who seemed to have a deep, rich relationship with Christ that I craved. And I started gleaning from those people. And I can only just tell you what that journey has led me to is just such a more satisfying walk with Christ. And from someone who's attended church virtually his entire life, I've never been more fascinated with Jesus than I am now. I know what it is to taste and see that the Lord is good. And I, I've just decided for myself, I want to give the rest of my life to helping other people discover a, the same kind of fascination with Jesus and have the same kind of encounters that I'm having. I want people to experience that because I know what it's like to crave it to some degree, but to not experience it. And that's ultimately the journey that's led us here to Village Church. I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm not here to build a brand or to build an empire. We're not here to promote some partisan political agenda. I have no passion for that whatsoever. But I'm obsessed with Jesus and his kingdom. And I'm here at a church where I believe you are too. I believe we're on the same track. That's what, that's what caused us to uproot our family and move here across the nation where we didn't know anybody. We want to give our lives to becoming as a church an authentic expression of the kingdom of God. Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. But I just want to tell you, especially if you've been in church for a long time, keep seeking. Keep searching. Because you're not going to find it all in the first five years. You're not going to find it all in the first 10 years, the first 20 years, the first 30 years. Let your entire life be a relentless pursuit of Christ. Don't be content and complacent with what you have. You have no idea what you're missing. For all of eternity, we're going to be exploring the endlessly 
the endless riches of God's glory. There's a whole universe of God's glory that we have not even begun to conceive of. Keep seeking, keep knocking, keep asking. And along your journey with Jesus, I promise you, there, there are gonna come points in your journey with Jesus, in your hike with Jesus, where you're gonna realize, you know what, some of this baggage I'm carrying, some of these ideas that I've had, I need to let them go. This is excess baggage. This is not congruent with an authentic expression of God's kingdom. So I'm gonna have to let it go. Jesus is the treasure, nothing else. One more story, and it's not my story, it's an ancient story. It comes from the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and it involves a man named Cleophas, who we believe was Jesus' uncle. And uh, Cleophas was one of Jesus' many, 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 many disciples. He had 12 that he appointed as apostles, but he had many disciples. And Cleophas, uh, who was Jesus' uncle, was among the many who believed that Jesus was Messiah. And that weekend, or that previous week, Cleophas and a fellow disciple who we, some of us believe this was actually his wife. It's an unnamed person. But we believe this was his wife, Mary, perhaps. But they made their journey, their short journey from the town they lived in, Emmaus. They made their journey to Jerusalem to be part of the Passover. But in coming into Jerusalem, they arrived with an expectation, along with many, many others, that when they get to Jerusalem for Passover, they're expecting to see Jesus of Nazareth crowned king, like real king. And he's going to usurp the authority of the present rulership, and Jesus is going to be crowned the new king of Israel, the authentic king of Israel, the Messiah figure that the prophets envisioned and proclaimed. He's the one. He's going to fulfill that prophecy. He's going to sit on a literal throne and usher in what they thought or conceived of as being this is going to be the kingdom of God finally arriving, the reign of God among men. But instead of that happening that weekend, Jesus is executed. And now completely disheartened and disoriented, Cleophas and this unnamed disciple they travel back to their hometown of Cleophas. It's a seven-mile walk from uh, Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they're walking on their journey to Emmaus, seven-mile walk. And the whole way, they're in discussion about what's been happening these last few days. They're so disillusioned, confused. And right at the beginning of their journey, there's a stranger who approaches them. And he strikes up a conversation, and he, he says to Cleophas and, and this unnamed disciple, let's just assume it's his wife, Mary. He says to Cleophas and Mary, um, folks, what, what are you so sad about? What's you seem downcast. What are you sad for? And they say, well, you know, it's the, these things that have been happening these last few days in Jerusalem. And the stranger says, what things? And essentially, Cleophas says, have you been living under a rock? The things concerning 
Jesus of Nazareth. We, we, we had our hopes set upon him. We believed to the core of our being that he was our Messiah, the one who would be victorious and, and rule over Israel once again and usher in the reign of God on the earth. And he certainly was a mighty prophet indeed, but somehow or another, things just didn't come about the way we expected. And, and instead, our chief priest condemned him and the Romans crucified him. And we watched him buried in the grave. And, and uh, obviously, for someone to suffer like this, it, it, he could not have been what we expected. He couldn't have been the Messiah. And what's even more, on top of all of this, some of the women that were associated with, they, they, they came and, and rushed to us announcing that the tomb was empty. And they had these strange experiences that they were sharing with us. And, and we just don't know what to think. We're just totally overwhelmed. And, and uh, so we're on our way back to Emmaus. And the stranger says, you, you people are so slow to believe the things that the prophets foretold. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, he began to show them the things foretold concerning the Christ. And of course, this is not a stranger. It's Jesus himself. But they don't know that. Somehow or another, their eyes are, are prevented from seeing who he is. They cannot recognize him. They're, he's disguised to them. And so this entire walk to Emmaus, he begins to share out of the prophets, quoting out of the Psalms, out of Moses, he begins to show them that actually, in fact, the Messiah had to suffer. That these things that just took place in Jerusalem had been foretold. That this was actually the plan of God all along, and that the Messiah would be resurrected on the third day. And he begins to open up their eyes and their minds to see the provision of God in the scriptures. That entire walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, seven mile walk, you know, that's, that's at least two, two and a half hours. He opens the scriptures to them, and the whole time, their hearts start burning within them. There's, there's a craving, there's a hunger that starts to get stirred up in them. Finally, they reach Emmaus, and it's about the hour that the sun is beginning to set. And we're told that Jesus, the stranger, pretends that he has to keep going. And he said, well, folks, it's been wonderful to have a conversation with you about these things. I've enjoyed getting to know you, and you guys have a great evening. I got to keep going. I'm not quite where I'm going yet. And Jesus pretends that he's got to keep going so that he would be asked and sought and invited. And Cleophas speaks up and says, oh, no, 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 you're not going anywhere. It's getting dark, it's not safe. You're gonna come stay with us tonight. We gotta keep this conversation going. We, 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 got, we gotta hear more. We'll prepare a nice meal for you, we'll feed you, we'll give you a place to stay, but you're coming to stay with us. You don't have an option. We're not gonna accept no for an answer, you're coming. And Jesus says, well, if you insist, absolutely we insist. And they go to Cleophas' house. You see, they're seeking, they're knocking, they're inviting. And hastily a meal is prepared. And then something interesting happens. Cleophas, as the owner of the household, should have been the host of this dinner. But instead, this stranger begins to assume the role of the host. And just like a few days earlier, 
in the upper room in the Last Supper, this stranger takes the bread, blesses it, gives thanks for it, breaks it, and gives it to Cleophas and Mary. And as soon as he does that, their eyes are opened and they recognize that they've been with Jesus this entire time. And as soon as they recognize him, he vanishes. And they look at one another and they're like, this changes everything. My heart's burning in my chest. Is your heart burning in your chest? Come on, we gotta go tell people. And that very moment, at that hour, they rush back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples who were all assembled together. What I just wanna invite you to think about is that you're on a journey with Jesus. Christianity is not a status, it's a journey. Ask, and Jesus will stay with you. Invite him. Keep knocking. Keep seeking. Don't settle for what you have. There are more pearls to be found. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.